As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello there, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 125, and today we are talking about intra-abdominal hypertension. Before we hop into that, as always, I like to take a moment to give a listener shout out to those of you that take the time to write in and let us know how the podcast is helping you and how much value you're getting from it. So today's listener shout out goes to Lid in the UK and Lid writes, really helpful podcast. As a nursing student having two preschool children, I have found this podcast so helpful in allowing me to maximize my time whilst taking care of household chores. And also I have found nurse mode to be really encouraging and supportive to nursing students, which has been really valuable to me. I am now qualified and about to start my first role as an RN, and I am sure I will continue to benefit from these fantastic podcasts. Lid, thank you so, so, so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to rate and review the podcast and let me know how much it's helping you. I'm so glad that you're able to review material while you're doing your chores. I like that people can still kind of go on about and live their lives while they're still getting in a little bit of studying. It really helps achieve a little bit more balance and feeling of control in your life. So I'm a big fan of that. So thank you again so much and congratulations on finishing school. And I wish you the very best of luck in your new role as a registered nurse. Okay, you guys. So the topic for today is intra-abdominal hypertension. You may also hear it called abdominal compartment syndrome, the more clinically correct term is intra-abdominal hypertension. So intra-abdominal hypertension is a progressive and life-threatening condition when the pressures in the abdomen increase and can increase so much that they impede on heart function, renal function, respiratory function, they can cause massive problems for your patient. And the kicker is that, you know, because it's progressive, it's going to start out and then build. So in those early stages, it can be really subtle and hard to catch. So we're going to talk about how we're going to be super vigilant and the things you might watch for in the clinical setting. So early on, clinical signs are pretty subtle. So when we look at abdominal pressures, a normal abdominal pressure is around 5 to 7 millimeters of mercury. And the way we measure abdominal pressures in the clinical setting is kind of this, it's not super complex, but it's moderately complex of a setup. It involves the patient having a Foley catheter, and then we attach a three-way stopcock, and then we fill the bladder with fluid, we measure pressures, 
It's much more easily described with visuals, so I'm not going to really try to explain it on a podcast, but just know that there is a way to measure intra-abdominal pressure, and we do that through a bladder. We attach a transducer to the Foley catheter, and we are able to measure pressures that way. So that's how we do it. And a normal pressure is about five to seven millimeters of mercury. So in the early stages, where the pressure is around 12 to 15 millimeters of mercury, we could see some subtle clinical signs. And even without those clinical signs, because they are kind of subtle, you guys, I want you to be very aware of the patient at risk for intra-abdominal hypertension. So this would be, first of all, the patient who has sepsis that has received a lot of fluids. We call that fluid resuscitation. These days, we're a lot more aware of the dangers of over fluid resuscitating patients. But think about sepsis, think about what happens to the vessels and how they become highly permeable, you know, they get leaky. Well, the fluid we give can leak out of the vasculature and it can then go into the abdominal space where it causes increased abdominal pressures. So that's a patient I would think, hmm, I'm going to keep a close eye. And if they start exhibiting any of these subtle signs, I could be suspicious that they have early stage intra-abdominal hypertension. Also, surgical patients that have received huge amounts of blood, again, that's a lot of volume. We have patients that undergo like 10, 12-hour back surgeries, massive back surgeries, and they lose 12 liters of blood. Obviously, they've been getting transfused. We've been giving it, and they lose it. We give it, they lose it over and over and over again. But there's massive blood losses with back surgeries like that. The patient may have what we call a big belly surgery, and we're not talking about the size of the patient's abdomen or making disparaging remarks about their body habitus. When you hear the term big belly in reference to a surgery, what we're talking about is a patient who had a very massive, very significant abdominal surgery. That typically is an open surgery. A lot of times the physician can't even close the abdomen afterwards and the belly has to remain open for a little bit of time. Patients whose abdomens are open are less likely to get the compartment or the increased pressures because there is space, more space there because the incision was not closed. Um, we say it's a big belly surgery because it could have been, you know, massive blood loss, the amount of time the surgery took, the surgical procedure that was done. So if you hear someone say big belly, they're talking about a really extensive big abdominal surgery. So these are patients that would be at high risk for intra-abdominal hypertension. And again, even some of those back surgeries that patients have, sometimes there is an anterior approach as well as a posterior approach. So especially if they're going through the belly, again, high risk for intra-abdominal hypertension. So we're going to be aware that those patients are at risk and we're going to keep a close eye on some subtle signs and symptoms that they could exhibit Again, when the pressure's around 12 to 15 millimeters of mercury. And at this point, you're probably not doing those intra-abdominal pressure measurements, okay? You're just keeping an eye on clinical symptoms. So one of the common symptoms a patient may display is that they might state they're having a hard time taking a deep breath. You may also see that if they're on a ventilator, we're not able to wean them very well. They're not getting good lung volumes. 
Well, why is that? It's because there's, you know, a compartment in the abdomen, right? And as we take up space with that fluid, then the diaphragm cannot move adequately and we don't get good lung volumes. Same with the urine output. There could be a bit of a drop off in the urine output. That's because of pressure placed on the renal system. It's not going to operate optimally. So if you see these two subtle signs, then you might start thinking my patient could be having the early stages of increased intra-abdominal pressure. And of course, you know, there's lots of reasons why a patient may not be able to take a full deep breath, right? A lot of times, especially surgical patients have a hard time with this simply because they're in pain. And then urine output can be decreased because of a lower blood pressure, or maybe they're dehydrated. If they're fluid volume overloaded, not as likely, but again, where is that fluid? Is it in the intravascular space or is it third spacing? If you're interested in reviewing or learning more about third spacing, go back and listen to episode 113. So now let's look at what happens in more of the stage two intra-abdominal hypertension. So at this stage, our pressures are around 16 to 20 millimeters of mercury. And again, just to review, normal is kind of around that five to seven range. So things are starting to get bad for your patient in this stage two. We're starting to really get some other organ involvement or detriment to those other organs. So as that abdominal pressure increases, you really will start to notice those symptoms. They're not going to be as subtle as they were in the stage one. Still a little bit subtle, but you are going to be on the watch for them and an excellent clinician. So at this stage, you're not at compartment syndrome yet, but you're working your way into that direction. Some people will call this or some resources will call this stage occult organ ischemia. And it occurs when that pressure, again, is in that 60 to 20 millimeters of mercury range. And you'll be seeing maybe the patient has an acidosis that you can't really explain why. They could have a falsely elevated central venous pressure if you're, if you're monitoring those or a falsely elevated wedge pressure if you're monitoring those in your patient. And if you haven't learned about hemodynamic monitoring just yet, don't worry, you'll learn all about it in advanced med surge or if you work in a critical care setting. The patient's cardiac output could be further decreased. Their urine output could be further decreased. Maybe they're exhibiting signs of hypoxemia. Maybe they're having signs of hypercarbia. Increased peak pressures if they're on a ventilator. That's something that you'll learn about in advanced med surge as well or in the critical care setting if you haven't done that just yet. And maybe you'll see that their belly is distended. If the patient is of larger size, that might be harder to assess. So that's why with that first assessment of the day, you guys get down to the skin and visualize all parts of your patient. Because if that belly starts to get bigger, I want you to notice it. And I guarantee you, your patient wants you to notice it as well. 
And then as that pressure builds, we get into that stage three zone. And now things are looking pretty bad for your patient. They're definitely going to be having problems here. This is that realm of abdominal compartment syndrome. And if you guys are interested in learning about compartment syndrome... Then head on over to episode 119, where we look at it in the realm of extremity compartment syndrome, that limb ischemia from increased pressures in that limb compartment. So at this stage three, we're definitely in that abdominal compartment syndrome range, and your patient is continuing to deteriorate at this point. This patient is going to be having multiple organ dysfunction. So not just one organ, you guys, multiple organ dysfunction. So you're likely to see with abdominal compartment syndrome when that intra-abdominal hypertension has gotten so high that there's really no more space for expansion and we're putting a lot of pressure on the surrounding vasculature and organs. This is that patient who has an acidosis that does not respond to any of the other things that you've done to try to correct it. The belly will definitely be distended and very likely tense to palpation. If the patient is overweight, again, this might be difficult to assess. So again, with that first initial assessment, get down to the skin, look and touch. The patient will be in renal failure, possibly not putting out any urine at all, if any, maybe a little bit. The patient would have very low even absent bowel sounds as that gut suffers severe ischemia and begins to essentially die off. Patient will have respiratory failure as the lungs basically lose space for expansion. Cardiovascular instability definitely will occur and even rising intracranial pressure. So right there, we're looking at the kidneys failing, the gut failing, the respiratory failure, the heart failing, and the brain. So that's five organ systems right there that are basically down. So you're going to obviously be letting somebody know about this, right? So at this point, you're definitely measuring those abdominal pressures because hopefully by stage two, you have noticed that there's an issue with your patient and you've gotten an order to measure abdominal pressures. So again, in this zone, that patient is above 20, maybe a little um, even higher. I've seen even higher abdominal pressures. And you're going to be letting the MD know and anticipating some kind of intervention, possibly a surgery at the bedside, which is what I saw when I was a new nurse. And the point of that is to decompress kind of in the way that we do the fasciotomy for the limb ischemia, that limb compartment syndrome. They want to release that abdominal pressure by opening the belly. And when they do this, the bowel basically will just expand right out. And it's kind of incredible to see. If you want to see what that looks like, just Google search it and you will be a little bit shocked at what you see. So um, yes, I've seen this done at the bedside. And then the patient may get something called a neuromuscular blockade, a paralytic, which will reduce that abdominal 
uh, muscular tone of the abdominal wall and possibly give a little bit more room for extra expansion to relieve some of the pressure on the organs. So what kinds of therapies and things would you see being done for a patient with increasing abdominal pressures? So one of the things that we can do is we want to make space, right? So you might see some therapies aimed at making space in the abdominal compartment. So the physician may order a nasogastric tube for this patient. You want to be able to suction out any gastric contents. Placing a rectal tube is something that may occur as well with the co-committant administration of medications that are going to make them expel their bowel contents as quickly as possible. We also will minimize the amount of fluids that we're giving the patient. If they were on tube feeding, we're going to probably be pausing that for now or minimizing it at least. And even giving something like enemas could help the patient to expel whatever bowel contents there are. And you guys, there can be a lot of stool inside a patient. So just know that therapies designed to create more bowel elimination can be helpful for the patient. We talked a bit about using that paralytic to decrease that abdominal muscular tone. The physician may choose to do other things to improve uh, compliance of the abdominal wall. Before paralytics, they may try something like sedation so that the patient's not tightening up their abdomen, especially if they're on a ventilator. And then if the patient has an abdominal binder as part of their dressing after surgery, removing that as well. And the reverse Trendelenburg position could be beneficial in getting that pressure off the lungs and the heart. And then if those measures aren't working and the pressures continue to rise, then they would look at that paralytic as a possible treatment modality. Again, you're also going to be looking very carefully at how much fluid the patient is getting. We talked about max concentrating fluids. The medical team, if the patient is stable enough, may look at diuresing the patient to try to get that fluid volume off. Patients may even need dialysis to get the fluid volume off if they're stable enough for that. And then again, as that abdominal pressure gets above that 20 range with organ function failure, then that's likely that the surgeon is going to choose to do a abdominal decompression procedure. And if it's really critical and it needs to happen right now, those can occur at the bedside. So I hope that helps you guys understand a really interesting but yet often devastating condition that patients in the critical care setting could have. Even if the patient isn't in the critical care setting, you could notice these subtle signs on a regular surgical patient or a regular sepsis patient. So have a high index of suspicion when it's warranted and do those careful and thorough assessments on your patients. And I just want to take a moment to congratulate all the new nursing students that are going to be starting school soon. A lot of you have been getting your acceptance letters or emails, and I remember that excitement. And I just want to say congratulations. I'm so excited for you. I would love for you to come join my Facebook group, Thriving Nursing Students. So come join that group. And when you join that group, I ask you a few questions. And one of those questions is, would you like my 
free guide, The 11 Habits of Successful Nursing Students. So we can get that out to you there. I'll also link to the sign up form for that as well in case you're not a Facebook person, but just some key habits that I've noticed amongst successful nursing students so you can start thinking about setting yourself up for success even now before school starts. So I will see you back here next week for a very special episode. It's kind of a surprise. I don't want to give it away just yet, but I'll see you back here next week. Thanks so much, guys. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. you find it hard to sleep at night then the calm cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long calm cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires all of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast calm cove is brought to you by the team behind sleep cove the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.